Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation, and we ended last week about halfway through chapter 13. We ended with this verse, Revelation 13, 8. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. We find that the beast rises to power through what the Bible calls the harlot or the prostitute or the immoral woman. In Revelation 17, it says this, one of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come upon the great prostitute who sits on many waters. The rulers of the world have had immoral relationships with her, while the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Now, in, in tribulation time, the harlot is basically the apostate church. It's not any denomination or any, any faith. It's all a, com a culmination of all the faiths who have denied Christ. It doesn't matter if, you know, it could be AG, it could be anything. If you deny Christ and you're still in church, that's who the Bible's talking about. And the, the beast is going to get his power from them, from the apostate church. And when the beast gets to full power, what, he, what he's going to do is he's actually going to destroy the false religions, the false, the, the harlot. Revelation 17, 15 says, once the beast gets his power, the, the false church gives him authority and power. They like him. And once he ha has that power, now he crushes the apostate church in Revelation 16 or 17, 15. It says, the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is sitting represent masses of people of every language and nation. The scarlet beast and his ten horns, which represent ki ten kings who will reign with him, all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. So the beast, when he starts to rise to power, the fake church applauds him. They like him. They give him that authority. And once he gets it and they can't take it back, then he destroys them. Now, the New American Standard says it more clearly. In Revelation 13, 10 says, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he will go. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. And what's the Bible say in Revelation 13:9? He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And what this is saying is, if you choose to fall into that false church, that apostate church, into the ways of the enemy, if you choose to go that way, you will go into captivity. The Bible says before we were sinner, before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. We were in captivity to sin. Well, the Bible says if you continue that way, it's, you're going to be in captivity. It's going to be a slave issue for you. And it calls for patient endurance on the people who aren't the apostate church. And what a lot of people think is, well, I'll go along with it for a time, but I'll, I'll be able to work it out. I'll be able to get out of it. And he's basically saying, no, if you choose to go that way, there is no coming back. New American Standard says, if anyone is destined for captivity, in other words, slaving to sin, to captivity, he's going to go. And if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword, he is going to be killed. So the people that are killing the believers that, at that moment, thinking they're doing God a favor, the Bible says, you kill them with the sword, you're going to be killed again with the sword. It's a law of sowing and reaping. What did Jesus say about that in Matthew 26? And Jesus said to him, put your sword away in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. 
That's when Peter cut the ear off of the servant. And John's saying, look, if you choose to go that way, you're going the way of the, the slaves, the, the apostate church, and you start killing other Christians, be assured that you're going to be killed as well. You're not going to have a chance to come back. And also it says that those who refuse the mark can't come back. The agent said the beast will capture and kill all those who refuse the mark, but in the end, those agents will also be killed. And they can't fight back. Revelation 13.10 says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. In other words, if you're alive and you're a believer during this time, we're going to talk about the mark. You can't take the mark. If you can't take the mark, you can't eat, you can't buy, you can't do anything. And you're going to be martyred. And he's saying at this moment, it calls for patient endurance. It's going to be horrible for believers. It's going to need faithfulness because they're going to want you to recant. And you need to stay faithful because once you take the mark, there is no going back. You cannot, you, you rejected it. And the Bible says God will not save you at that moment if you take the mark. They must endure what is coming because the pain is going to be real. It'll be short-lived, but it will be real, but eternity will be forever. So when they're being martyred, they know that this pain is short, and I'm going to be in eternity in, some, in, in a short amount of time. And so the pain I'm enduring now is worth it for what's coming in eternity. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast come out of the earth. He had two horns like that of a lamb, and he spoke with the voice of a dragon. Now we have, we talked about the dragon last week. The dragon is Satan. The first beast we just talked about is the Antichrist. This guy, the other beast, is the false prophet. And he is going to assist the beast to worship, assist him in getting people to worship him. That's his job. He's going to be the one who deceives the world by performing deceptive miracles. Notice what we have. We have the unholy trinity. You have the dragon opposite God. You have the Antichrist, obviously, opposite Christ. And now you have the false prophet who is the opposite of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit's job? Is to point people to Christ, right? The false prophet's job is to point people to the Antichrist to get him to worship, to get people to worship him. And it says that he has horns like a lamb. In other words, he's going to give the impression of being a gentle, caring. And again, why a lamb? Because he's mocking Christ as the Lamb of God. And so he is going to give the impression of being caring and gentle. Everyone's going to love him. But we're going to find out further on that it's just an act because it says he spoke with the voice of a dragon. But since he has no crowns and only horns, it means he has power, but not political power. He has religious power. The beast, the false prophet, will exercise all the power and the authority of the first beast. In other words, the Antichrist is going to give the false prophet his power, his authority. He's going to operate in the name of the, of the Antichrist. Like the Holy Spirit operates now in the name of Christ, the false prophet's going to operate in the power of the Antichrist. Dragon is going to be the source of both of their powers. The dragon, Satan, is going to give the Antichrist his power, and the Antichrist is going to give the false prophet his power, all of it being originated from Satan himself. Verse 12 says, he exercised all the authority of the first beast and he required all the earth and those who belonged to it to worship, the, worship this first beast whose death wound had been healed. 
So the false prophet is now encouraging and telling the world to worship the Antichrist. And he's saying that if, and, and they're doing this because the, the, if you remember we talked about last week, the first beast suffered a head wound that we thought was fatal. And the Bible says it appeared to be fatal, but it wasn't. And he's using this fatal wound as an example of to draw people in. Look, look at the Antichrist. He got, a, he got healed. He got resurrected from this wound that killed him. He's not resurrected, so he's got to be God. That's what the false prophet's going to do. And the Antichrist is going to say, yep, that's me. I was dead. Now I'm alive again because I have the power of life. But we talked about it last week. He doesn't have the power of life. Only God has the power of life. He was wounded, but he wasn't dead. The Bible says it appeared that he was dead. The world's going to think he was dead, but he wasn't. And, he's gonna, and the, Antichrist, or the false prophet is going to point people to the Antichrist using the fatal wound as an example of this person's got to be deity. This person's got to be God because he was resurrected from the grave. Again, duplicating or imitating or just uh, outright lying about what Christ did. Verses 13 and 14 says, He did astounding miracles such as making fire flash down from, to earth from heaven while everyone was watching. And all the miracles he was allowed to perform on, on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the world who did not all the people who did not belong to the world. What's the word I'm looking for? It imitates he. He does, the enemy does things. He can't do anything on his own. He has no originality. He basically duplicates or tries to duplicate what God did. When you call down fire from heaven, what's that sound like? Elijah and the false prophets of Baal, right? He has no original thoughts of his own. Now, all the, although the prophets of Baal could not draw fire down, this guy can. Again, imitating what God did. Now, the fire in, in this case didn't burn anybody up like they did in Elijah's case, but it was a demonstration designed to impress the people and convince them, hey, look, I did just what Elijah did in the Old Testament. I'm just like God. I am God. Worship me. I'm calling down fire from heaven. The people belonging to the world, as the Bible says here, are those who are not believers. And he will deceive everyone. So if you have the mark, you've already been deceived. If you're not a believer in that time, at that moment, you're, everyone is going to be deceived. Look at Matthew 7, 13. We use this a lot. We talk about people who know Christ and people who don't. Jesus said, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is broad and wide. For the wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Christians are always going to be in a minority. We will always be the remnant. We will always be less than those who don't believe. The Bible plainly says that many enter through this broad gate. Christians enter through the narrow gate. If you remember in the, in the Gospels, the Pharisees asked Jesus to do miracles to prove himself. And what was Jesus' answer? No, not going to do it. The, prof, the false prophet will do miracles and the people will follow him. That's why every miracle that we see, every supposed miraculous thing we see has to be verified by Scripture. It has to be provable and most important, it has to point people to Jesus. If it doesn't point people to Jesus, it doesn't matter how good the miracle is. It's a demonic 
miracle designed to lead people away from Christ. I mean, God addressed it way back in Deuteronomy. He says, suppose there are prophets among you or those who have dreams about the future and they promise you signs and miracles and the predicted signs or miracles take place. If the prophet then says, come, let us worship the gods of foreign nations, do not listen to them. The Lord your God is testing you to see if you love him with all your heart and soul. There's gonna be a lot of fake miracles, things that are pseudo-miraculous uh, signs, all designed to draw us away from God. That's why we said it before, we don't worship miracles. We like to see miracles, but the miracles aren't the end game. Miracles are designed to point people to Jesus. If you have a testimony of what God did, a healing, whatever, it's designed to point people to Jesus. But if we have a miraculous thing happen in church, it's designed to bring people in to see what, going, what God's doing. And it's ultimately designed to point people to Christ. We said it before, the Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus. The false prophet's job is to point people to the Antichrist. And he will have the ability to do that. He will promote, the false prophet will promote an ecumenical religion, which is basically a blending of all faiths and beliefs into one that will worship the Antichrist. And we see that now. All roads lead to God. How many have heard that or even said that at some point? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. How many have heard that one? It does matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. You can be sincerely wrong. But what they're going to do is he's going to make this one big tent thing and allow everybody to come in it doesn't matter what you believe, we're going to get you all together and we're going to have you all worship the Antichrist because he's God. That was, that's his premise. And it's seen more along the lines in verse 14. It says, he ordered the people of the world to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and came back to life. Remember, he's trying to imitate everything that Jesus did. He's claiming himself to be resurrected. He's telling the world that he's been resurrected. But the Bible says, we said it earlier, it only appears that he was dead, not resurrected. And this statue is probably similar to the one that Daniel erected. It was erected by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel so the people would worship what? The statue. Daniel 3 verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And verse 5 says, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Again, duplicating what has happened in the Bible in the past. But instead of setting it up in a field, he sets it up in the temple. If you remember, the temple was rebuilt the first three and a half years when the Antichrist came into power. He made a treaty, he loved everybody, everyone thought he was great. Three and a half years, he breaks that treaty. And that's when he erects this statue in the temple. The place that the Jews had for God, he's now going to erect this statue that people are supposed to worship. Daniel 9.27 says, now looking forward to the future, it says, he will make a treaty with the people for a period of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings then as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. 
So he kicks the Jews out of the temple, takes the altar out, replaces it with a statue of himself. And he causes or he wants people to worship that statue. And verse 15 says, he was permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue commanded that everyone refusing to worship it must die. Remember, God's the only one who has author of life. Devil can't make life. So what is this? The word bara, B-A-R-A, the Hebrew word, means to create something from nothing that was used in the creation of the world in Genesis 1. He created something from nothing. And that word is never used in, any, in reference to anyone except God when he creates something out of nothing. So what's the voice? What's the statue speaking? Most scholars believe it's a demonic presence. The New, the New American Standard says this, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. Now the word breath here is the word pneuma, and that, that word means spirit. So if you read that again, it says it was given to him to give spirit to the image of the beast. So when it says he's permitted to give life, it means it was a demonic spirit that came into that statue, not life as we know it. And the demonic spirit is allowed to speak through the statue. Why else would a statue say that created life, you must worship me or die? This is going to be his greatest deception because the statue is going to speak. The Bible doesn't say how he's going to do it. But since this seems like the only other possibility, a demonic presence. You think back to the, when Saul went to the witch to call up Samuel from the dead. It says the witch was scared when she saw Samuel. Why do you think that was? It doesn't say. I have an, an opinion about that. I think that every time she gave like a seance or something, either she was making it up or a demonic spirit would appear. When it actually was the, the Samuel, she was scared because she never saw anything like it before. This is something brand new to her. She has never experienced this. And so she was scared. And so I believe that this statue can be empowered by a demonic spirit, just like fortune tellers and witches and all those folks have when they talk to dead people, most of which aren't true, but those who really get into it, I believe the enemy can use them and get into their life as well. And what happens is statue will allow the Antichrist to claim divinity. And all those who see it or hear it will agree because, hey, this, this statue is speaking to me. It, it has to be true. And those that don't worship the statue, what is happening? They're going to be martyred. Again, just like Daniel in Daniel 3, 6, whoever does not fall down and worship and it will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, I didn't realize this, but as I was studying, note that this kind of philosophy is not a Marxist or communistic, atheistic philosophy that's going to be happening in this time because it's a religious philosophy. And we know that communism, and they, they stamp out any, any form of religion. So it's not communist, it's not Marxist, it's not you know, any atheistic philosophy. It's going to be a false religious philosophy. The biggest threat to biblical Christianity isn't atheism. It's false religions. Why? Because everybody has to worship something. 
And everyone who worships something in some kind of religion think they're doing the right thing. The unholy trinity is going to retain, quote, religion, but it's going to be the religion that exalts himself as God. And verse 16 says, He required everyone, great and small, rich and poor, slave and free, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. Now you have the entire, quote, religious population, the, the fake church, the apostate church. They're all worshiping this image. They're the ones that are in power. The Antichrist now has power. And now he's beginning to gain economic power and authority. See that now in, in false religions, the guy who's the leader of the false religion, he's a leader of that. And all of a sudden, he starts gaining economic power. He starts siphoning off the funds and having economic power. And then he runs for office. And he has political influence. That's exactly what's going to happen with the Antichrist. He's going to go from being the leader of this apostate church to now having political power and economic power, which is why he's instituting the mark. He's now going to have economic power over the people of the world. And notice it says it will be placed on him. So it's going to be a visible mark that everyone's going to be able to see, somehow attached to your skin. The word mark is the word sharagma. It's used of a mark or a stamp, which could be engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted, like a tattoo or something along those lines. Not a chip inserted under the skin that no one can see. It's pretty plain that the word is a visible sign that is on the person or on the right hand. You get that mark, it's also irreversible. It will forever identify you as having rejected Christ. And again, one more time, the devil imitates God because it's the opposite of the mark that God used for the 144,000 to keep them safe. Devil's using a mark now to condemn them. Those receiving the mark are now sealed for the enemy. The 144,000 were being sealed for God, but now they're being sealed for the enemy. And verse 17 says, no one can buy or sell anything without the mark. So now he's gone from controlling people with religion now he wants to control people through the economic system. And the economic pressure will be brought to bear and those, and this will convince many to take the mark. Now we think now, well, that'll be easy, I'm not going to take the mark. If I'm, well, let me explain something. If you're here and you hear this gospel, you're going to take the mark if you're there. If you don't accept Christ now, you're not going to get saved during that time. We, we've said that many times. But perhaps you've never heard the gospel and you wind up in the tribulation. You think it's going to be easy to resist the mark. I've told people, you know, if you, get in the, if you wind up in the tribulation, don't, don't take the mark. Ah, yeah, no problem. I, I won't take it. You think it's going to be easy not to take the mark. Imagine your kids not having any food. Your baby starving to death because you have no food. You have no place to live. If you have a business, you can't do business because you can't buy or sell anything. You can't get water. You can't get food. You can't get medicine. You can't get medical, attempt, medical attention. The pressure is going to be immense for you to take the mark. 
the denomination of the world economy, remember at this point it will be a one world currency. And because of that, it will encourage those to take the mark. How many remember the TV show MASH? Do you remember the last, the last episode of the series? If you didn't see it, I'm going to spoil it for you. The last show of the last, the last very last show, they're in a, in a bus hiding from the enemy. Now, it's been a while since I've seen it, so. But Hawkeye, if you know his character, Alan Alda's character, he's, he's hearing a chicken scream and, and scream and cock, whatever they, whatever they do. And he's telling the girl holding the chicken to shut the chicken up because the enemies are going to hear. But what it is, in the end, it's actually the mother's baby that's making the crying noise, not a chicken. And the mother chokes the baby to keep her quiet so they don't get discovered by the enemy. Can you imagine having to do that? That's going to be similar to what it is with the mark because they're going to be hunting you down. And if they find you, they're going to kill you. And you're going to have to let your children starve to death because you don't take the mark. Verse 17 and 18 says, And no one could buy or sell anything without the mark, which was either, on the na- which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed to understand this. Let the one who has understanding solve the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, there's a lot, all kinds of speculation on what that number means. And everyone's tried to do all kinds of, you know, fitting names into it. A lot of the Hebrew letters correspond to numbers and try to, people try to put other names, you know. They, well, they did it for Nixon. If you remember way back in the 60s, they did it for Nixon. Well, if you do Nixon, his, his numbers are all the same as the, the 666. Forget that. Because we don't know who it is. We don't know if it represents anyone. It says represent, it's a number of a man. Most commentaries that I read believe that this is, the, this is the most plausible explanation. Man was created on the sixth day. Sixth day number of man. Three is the number of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three sixes could represent the man who declares himself to be God. But the truth is, no one can really nail down what that truth is, what the number means. People during that time will probably understand it, but right now, we don't. Nor nor do we need to. I'm a firm believer if God doesn't really spell it out, make it plain, then we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what it is when we should be studying what God does make plain. And the Bible says wisdom is needed. Wisdom not to understand what the number means or who it could represent, but simply that it's man's number, not God's number. All throughout history, people have tried to identify who the Antichrist is by adding up these numbers. But God says you need wisdom not to figure it out, 
but simply to know that it's man's religious scheme, not God's religious scheme. God's number of perfection is what? Seven. So the devil can't claim sevens. And one commentator says, well, the, the devil has to settle for sixes. Now that actually is the end of chapter 13. And what we will see during the tribulation is happening on a smaller yet significant scale today, I think. First John 2.18 says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists have appeared. Small a. Second John 7, many deceivers have gone out in the world. They do not believe that Jesus Christ came to earth in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an Antichrist. We have one, the Antichrist, capital A, that's coming. But all throughout history, we have had many Antichrist, small a's, who have been here and gone and will continue to come and go until the Antichrist comes. The world right now is an anti-Christian system. The Bible says we, as believers, can't be a part of that system. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love the world, you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. And we need to be sure that we are worshiping the true God. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. The enemy deceives us all day tries to deceive us all day long with putting things in our life that we attach more importance to than our relationship to God. What in your life, if God asked you to give it up, would you not want to give it up? Well, whatever that is, that's an idol. It doesn't have to be a statue or a gold anything. Maybe your job is your idol. Maybe your family is your idol. Maybe your relationships are your idol. Nothing can be more important than your relationship with God. I said this to young married couples. Draw a triangle. Put God at the top and put each of you at the corner. You don't have to become more like each other, but the more you become like God, what happens the closer you come? Right? Don't try to please the other person. Try to please God. And have the other person try to please God. As that happens, you automatically get closer. And finally, what do we need to be found faithful in the last days? In other words, we have to make sure we're ready today so we don't have to be here for any of this. We mentioned before the Bible says, we, knowing these things, we keep ourselves pure as he is pure. That means we have to not live a perfect life, but we have to live a life in expectancy of Christ coming back or us going to be with Christ whenever that day is. And the older you get, the closer that day gets here. But there's no guarantee that you're going to reach 80 or 90 years old. You know, a good friend of ours passed away. He's younger than me. A couple years ago, another pastor friend of mine, he passed away. 
He had, they found pancreatic cancer, and he was gone within about a month. Several years ago, another person on our staff, a friend of ours, got sclerodoma. You ever hear of that? It's where your innards start hardening. And he passed away, and he was only in his 40s, I think. No, no guarantees. The only guarantee we have is that when we do come to that point, we know where we're going. And this whole Bible is written so that we may know where we're going. And those we're praying for, we want them to be a part of that as well. Because when we're gone, the church is gone, the chances go down dramatically of someone coming to know Christ. So we need to be about God's business. We're bringing a youth pastor on to reach young people. We're not doing it right now. So we believe that God's raising up someone to do that. And we believe that God's going to continue to reach people through him and through what we do here. That makes me excited for what God is going to do. You anticipating something tremendous happening? You know, the Bible says there's not going to be any kind of big revival, worldwide revival, but there's going to be, and there can be small, independent revivals. And I believe, and we've been praying for that on Thursdays when we come together. It's coming. It's coming. In these last days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, right? And we're that all flesh. So I'm excited for what God is going to do. We, we study this stuff because the Bible says we're blessed if we study it. But if we're believers, we're not going to be here for it. But we do know people that are going to be here unless we have a chance to change their mind about that. So that's our job. Amen? Would you stand to close? Everybody wants to know if I'm going to finish on time, if I'm going to finish on time. Four minutes early. Don't spend that four minutes unwisely. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been in church all your life or maybe this is relatively you're, you're new here. The question's still the same. This church can't save you. I can't save you. I can't give you a relationship with God. And this church can't either. All we can do is point you to the one who can. And that person is Jesus. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all sinned, and the Bible says we've all fallen short of what God's standard is. And that means any sin, just one, keeps us out of God's presence. But the Bible also says that God sent Jesus as payment for that sin. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But lastly, the Bible also says that we have to receive that gift. We have to make a conscious choice to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that his payment for sin was payment for your sin and mine. Lord, I believe that you died for me. I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that only your payment for sin can cover me and make me right with with God. If that's you, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you make it right. Not tomorrow. Today. 
If that's you and you want to make it right with God, I want you to raise your hand right now. I'm going to believe we're all committed followers of Christ then. So, Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for being so gracious to us and allowing us to come into your kingdom, for being long-suffering, putting up with us until we actually believed in who you are. And we thank you for allowing us to be brought into the kingdom of God. And we thank you, Lord, we know what's going to happen in the years to come, whenever that's going to be. And we know that we have a, a responsibility while we're still here. And that responsibility is to lead people to you. And I pray that you would revive this church to the point where that's all we can think about. That's all we want to do. That's our entire focus. Lord, we can pray in heaven. We can, we'll know your Bible in heaven. We can worship God in heaven. We can't lead people to Jesus in heaven. We thank you that we're able to do all these things now. And I pray that you would bless our efforts, that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, that you would send us out into this world and help us to make a difference, that it matters that we're here. Let this community know, Lord, that we love them and care for them, and we want them to know the same Savior we have and allow their lives to be transformed like our lives have been transformed. Father, bless those who are here who are struggling. They may be going through situations in their life that they can't really focus on anything else right now. And I pray that you would bless them and allow them to receive your comfort and peace right now. Let them receive something that only you can do. Something that we as, as human beings, we can't really impart to them, but you can. And I pray that you would do that for them. Give them wisdom or direction or a healing, whatever it is that you know that they need. I pray that you would work that in their life. And allow them to know, Lord, it was you doing it. It wasn't just an accident or a coincidence, but it was the power of God in their life. So, Lord, I pray you bless us as we leave today. Take the gospel with us and help us to be used by you for the kingdom of God. And we will thank you. As Paul said, you, you counted me worthy to be used and even to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Help us to be found worthy on that day, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday. Keep praying for VBS. It's less than a month away now.